Dear friends, this is the day that our Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to this time and space apart as we gather for worship this day. We welcome those who are gathered here in Martin Chapel, those who are with us virtually, and we pray that this will be a place and a time, a space where you can meet God. This morning, I want to thank Reverend Dr. Sarah Bixler for providing our music for us for this service. And with that, we will begin with a gathering hymn. Let's stand as we sing together hymn number 499. I invite you to sing along, clap if you so desire, as we sing this African-American spiritual to open our chapel here in this Black History Month. join our voices in the unison prayer. God of every place, some of us see you today from mountains of joy and confidence, mountains of gratitude and praise. 
Some of us seek you today from valleys of grief or doubt, valleys of loss or exhaustion. And in all places, there you are with us, nudging us onward. When we descend from the heights, show us your presence on the ground. When we rise from the depths, show us the light of your way. Meet us all on the path made by Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to join with me in the responsive reading. I will read the light type. Uh, you may respond with the bold, and we will all read together the italics. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because God has given it to me. If you would like to follow along in your hymnal, you may find this song in, on number 691 in Voices Together. And you are invited to sing on the refrain. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Bixler. That was a powerful meditation in music, and it was just lovely. Thank you so much for leading us. I have never heard a sermon on Psalm 13 before, the psalm that we read responsively. As I was preparing this sermon, I wondered why. I figure it's probably because I have worshipped and served my whole life in a denomination that prizes the Revised Common Lectionary. This passage only appears in the Revised Common Lectionary once, and when it does, it is paired with pericopes that would be hard to resist for any preacher. They are stories of the binding and near sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, of freedom in Christ from our sin found in Romans, and in the Gospel of Matthew, the rewards of discipleship. These texts would make much more interesting sermons than Psalm 13, so why would any preacher have chosen this passage? But secondarily, I think I haven't heard a sermon on this psalm because I don't hear many sermons on the psalms in general. The psalms are usually reserved for the Psalter reading in mainline denominations or for use as an accompaniment to a gospel text. For when we look to follow in the way of Jesus, the gospels have a strong gravitational pull. We also hear the psalms during special services, such as Ash Wednesday, which will occur one week from tomorrow. We will gather here in Martin Chapel for an Ash Wednesday service. And there we will read Psalm 51. We may think of funerals and memorial services where we often hear Psalm 23. But rarely do we hear the psalms preached during Sunday morning worship or in seminary chapel. And I'm the first to confess that I, as a preacher, have overlooked these sacred poems more often than I should admit. So why then, you might ask, am I preaching on a psalm today? It is because I am convinced that the Psalms carry a much-needed message for those of us who serve God, the church, and the world during these turbulent times. And these times are turbulent, or some would say troubled times. It doesn't take long for me after I get out of bed in the morning to be abruptly reminded that times are tough. I have my morning coffee while I am doom-scrolling through social media, and I know that's my first mistake. I should start my day in a much better fashion. But then I move on to getting kids ready for school and my nine-year-old can't find his mask while we're already late to school, or my 16-year-old texts when he arrives at school that his basketball game has been canceled due to either his or the opposing team having to quarantine. Then I get to work and I open my email to a full inbox outlining the current stagnation within my own denomination's conflict. I have students who report overwhelming situations at home or in their churches. 
We listen to the news. We hear how wars are threatened, how politics is on fire. It seems that everywhere I turn, conflicts have turned to arguments, and arguments have turned us into enemies. And this is on a good day. Sometimes it seems that the stresses of life and of ministry seem relentless. And these stresses can build upon us layer upon layer. I'm reminded of the popular song from the newest hit animated movie, Encanto. Have any of you seen Encanto yet? It's a fabulous movie with so much good symbolism for us as people of faith. And I'm reminded here of the chorus of one of the songs. I won't sing it, I'm not sure of copyright issues, and I don't want to mess with anyone whose first name is Walt, but the, the chorus lyrics say, it's pressure like a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. Pressure that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Pressure like a grip, 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 and it won't let go. Pressure like a tick, 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 and it's ready to blow. These lyrics describe the present situation that we find ourselves in, in the world. Psychologists and trauma researchers make the distinction between three levels of stress. Because we know not all stress is bad stress. There is the level of optimal stress. Optimal stress is the zone that leads to productivity and creativity. This would include such things as writing a Sunday sermon each week or preparing a paper for one of your classes. But then there's the next level of stress. This is distress. And distress moves one into the area of frustration and anxiety, which can eventually lead to health problems. But then the third layer is called traumatic stress. And traumatic stress describes the place on the barometer when things are so overwhelming that breakdown will happen, whether in physical or mental health or in relationships. Unfortunately, friends, the zones of distress and traumatic stress are where many of us find ourselves day to day especially as we realize that we are coming up on the two-year mark of this pandemic. So where do we go with all of this troubled stress? I recall a keynote speaker that we had at the School for Leadership training a couple of years ago named Shannon Martin, who said that when conflict is present in the world, there is no better place to go in scripture than the prophets. And I would have to agree with her, but I would add that the Psalms of Lament are an equally comforting place to land. That may sound strange that a lament psalm would be comforting, but sometimes there's no better comfort than to wail at God and let it all out. Many of you know what I mean. You've Recalled those times when you have to sneak out to your car or go into your closet with a pillow so you can just let God have it. Or maybe, maybe that's just me. Sometimes 
We all just have to find an outlet to let that bad stuff out. And that's what we hear the psalmist doing in Psalm 13. I will call them the poet for short because it's an equally appropriate term as psalmist and it's much easier on the tongue. So we will call them the poet. And this poet here is letting it rip. As psalms are notoriously hard to date, we don't know the exact context in which this, this poet wrote. But what we do know is that they felt completely overwhelmed. They speak of an enemy and of foes, and the enemy has overcome the poet to the point that they are afraid for their life. And not only that, but they imagine that those who collaborate with the enemy will engage in schadenfreude at the poet's downfall. As if that wasn't bad enough, the poet also feels rejected by God. This poet asked four questions, and as I quote these, these are coming from the New Jewish Publication Society version, the NJPS. And these questions the poet asks are, how long, O Lord, will you ignore me forever? This poet has been abandoned by God. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? God is willfully turning away. The poet is accusing God of divine neglect. How long, O Lord, will I have cares on my mind and grief in my heart all day? Now, mind here is not the best translation for this word that is a derivative of the Hebrew nephesh, meaning most closely life force. The NRSV and the version that we read responsively translate it better as soul. How long will I have cares on my soul and grief in my heart all day? The poet's very essence is troubled. How long, O Lord, will my enemy have the upper hand? Because of God's neglect, their enemy is winning. You know, these are serious accusations to make. I think it takes some real chutzpah, or maybe just a life of unrelenting traumatic stress. But that's not where it ends. This poet keeps going. They shift from questions of anguish to making brazen demands of God. God, stop neglecting me. Look at me and answer. Restore my vitality or I will die. Show up, God. Show up here and be God. Can you imagine speaking to God that way? Accusing God of divine neglect and demanding that God show up and do God's job? I think it would take either deep security in your faith or being overwhelmed beyond your capacity to cope to lead most of us to that place. For many Christians, this kind of wailing on God would be unimaginable. I'm thinking here of the crowd that I know so well. It's the God is good all the time and all the time God is good crowd. It's the 
everything happens for a reason crowd. It's the, it must somehow be God's will crowd. For these kindred of ours, speaking to God the way that this poet does would be pure blasphemy. And I kind of get it. Because this kind of speech runs counter to the narrative that is so prevalent in North American Christianity. You know this narrative. It's the narrative in which we get saved, we leave sin behind, and we live our best lives now in the freedom we have in Christ. And it's the sermon that you might hear on the same Sunday that this psalm would be read in the Revised Common Lectionary, Freedom in Christ, the Rewards of Discipleship. The problem is, though, that this narrative doesn't ring true to how most of us are experiencing life these days. Often, we do not find ourselves, excuse me, often we do find ourselves at our breaking point. And we may be tempted, like this poet, to wail against God. Maybe some of us have done exactly that before. But others of us might be afraid to. Understandably so. What if God rejects us? What if our salvation is tenuous enough that speaking our true feelings to God would instigate the kind of divine abandonment that the poet feels. It's scary territory. What if? <clears throat> As I look on this passage, I'm becoming curious what happens to our psalmist for being so brazen and bold with God. So if we pick this psalm back up, after making demands of God, let's see where the poet leads us. After, how long, O Lord, will you neglect me? God, show up and do something or I will die. Then we find, but I trust. I trust in your faithfulness. My heart, my heart will exult in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord, for God has been good to me. But I trust in your faithfulness. My heart will exalt in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord, for God has been good to me. If we read that last part alone, we might never think that it belonged with the previous rampage that the poet has given in this psalm. We read this part that sounds like pure ecstatic joy. It's almost as if our poet has gotten here exactly what they were looking for. They wanted their liveliness back, and I dare say they received it. They didn't want their enemy to rejoice, and here we find that it's the poet who is rejoicing. They wanted God to stop ignoring them, and God, 
God? Hmm, did God stop ignoring the poet? Did God actually change here? I'm actually reading that the poet just realized that God's hesed, God's steadfast, never forsake you, unending loving kindness has been there all along. As I read the end of this psalm, I'm beginning to think that it's not God who has changed here. I think it's the poet who has been changed. I think the poet's inner life, in the midst of just six short verses, has done a complete 180. I think their dark cloud of traumatic stress has been lifted. And I wonder, I wonder at that dramatic shift, what could it be? What could it be that leads the poet to make such a shift in tone that's so dramatic here? Could it be? Could it be that speaking so truthfully to God and getting that toxic stress out of the body opened the door to recognizing God's faithfulness? Could it be? I wonder. What do you wonder? For those who have not made the turn and are still in the first part of the song, open your hearts in prayer. For those of you who are not sure and still in the juxtaposition and stuck, open your hearts in prayer. For those of you who have been able to make a turn on many occasions and find yourself back at the beginning of the psalm, open your hearts up for prayer. And may the Spirit move upon us in new ways to recognize the journey goes together. If you would like to turn in your hymnal to 985, we will be doing a intercession litany under number F, letter F. At the same time, we will have a response which will also be sung. O oh Lord, hear my prayer. And if you are at the first half of this psalm, I invite you to sing, O oh Lord, hear my prayer. If you've made the shift, I invite you to sing, O oh Lord, hear our prayer.
We'll sing the refrain several times and then we'll move into the prayer. read the light print and you will follow with the dark print. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought together, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Gracious God, we bring our prayers to you as acts of love for you and for our neighbors. God of mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for ourselves and those dearest to us. I invite you to pray in open prayers if you wish. God of mercy, hear our prayer. Pray for our community and for our neighbors. Father, 
God of mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the church. God of mercy, hear our prayer. prayer, we pray for the world. God of mercy, hear our prayer. Pray for other concerns, other concerns that we carry in our hearts.
God of mercy, benediction. God will guide us continually and satisfy our needs in parched places, and we shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water never fails. Amen. join in the hymn of sending when pain or sorrow.
Friends, as we prepare to go forth, I will remind the students and seminary staff and faculty that we have our seminary deans forum by Zoom at 12 noon today. And we hope that you will join us back here for chapel worship next Tuesday as we will be led by Emily North in a recognition of Women's History Month. Let's stand as we receive the benediction. May God, whose loving kindness is ever present, give us the courage to face all that comes our way. And may God give us strength to call out and claim that strength that we have in God, in Christ, and in the Spirit. Go forth in this loving kindness. Amen.